From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this week we're going to be talking Obama, tangos and terrorism. For once, we don't have any Tuesday primary results to try and digest over breakfast, so we can take a step back and look at the long view. My special guest is John Judas, a longtime observer of American politics currently based at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the co-author of one of the most influential books of the last two decades, The Emerging Democratic Majority, which foresaw some of what we're witnessing in 2016 as the Republicans struggled to find anything resembling a winning strategy. He tells me why he's a Bernie Sanders supporter, even though he doesn't think his man can win. We have a situation really where people with enormous amounts of money have enormous and untoward influence over our politics, where they've been able to gut uh, economic, environmental, consumer regulation. You know, at some point, though, you have to raise the issues and make it clear to the public that these things matter. And why Obama's election in 2008 wasn't the turning point that it seemed to be at the time. Where I was really wrong, I think, was after Obama won office. What I thought then was you had a situation that was similar to that Franklin Roosevelt faced in April 1933 when he came into office and that Obama would have the chance to do very dramatic things that would put the Democrats in a situation where they'd not just have a slight majority, but a kind of lasting and enduring majority. That hope proved to be vain and false. That, that never came to pass. Stay tuned for that and a whole lot more. First, I'm joined by our regular panellists, Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey, and a big welcome back to Aaron Rapport. We've got a bit of breathing space this week because the relentless round of primary contests is also taking a breather. I thought we could take a step back and talk about something that we've only really touched on so far, which is Obama's legacy. And I kind of want to ask you all whether you think he's been a good president or not, partly because I just don't know what you're going to say. I probably have slightly more of an idea with Helen than with Aaron and Finbar, because I know, Helen, like me, in 2008, you were a bit of an Obama sceptic. I think we're both a little allergic to some of the hopey, changey stuff. Uh, Eight years on, are you still a sceptic? I am in a way, in the sense that I don't think that Obama has realised any of the hopey, changey rhetoric that was put on him, often indeed by his supporters as much as by himself. I think, though, the most interesting thing, looking back on 2008, is how irrelevant most of it seems to what's actually happened since. And in part, that's to do with the people that Obama contested that election with, primarily Hillary Clinton and then John McCain. In terms of what's been consequential or most consequential since then foreign policy, they've ended up pretty much in the same place. And after an election which was in good part from their point of view about attacking Obama's lack of experience and what that would mean in terms of foreign policy, well, there haven't been lines to draw between them. So where do you think Obama is now then on foreign policy? What is this space? Well, I think that what has happened is is that you have a, a president who came into office and who basically based his candidacy in policy terms on his opposition, although he'd not been in the Senate at the time, to the Iraq war. And he's ending his presidency by having sent American forces, not on the same scale, it's true, but still American forces back into Iraq. And if you look at it in those terms, it's pretty hard to see how it's been anything other than problematic. And if you look at the flip side of it, it was supposed to be anti-Iraq and Afghanistan's the 
the serious war. And nothing's really changed in terms of that either. There was an attempt at a surge, but Afghanistan is in pretty much the same position as it was back in 2008. We're going to come later on in this podcast to talk a bit about the war on terror in the current context and what it might mean, not least for the UK. Aaron, we normally talk to you about foreign policy, but I'm going to talk to you about domestic policy. Oh, great. (laughs) Enjoy. Uh, Obama as a domestic president, has he been a success? I think he has been a success. Um, Part of Obama's problem, I agree with Helen, was he set the expectations bar very high early on. And so that took a little bit of time for some of his supporters to come around to when they realized that he couldn't deliver all the promises that he made because there is this thing called the opposition party in Congress, which he had to deal with, and he couldn't persuade them as well as he could. That being said, if you look at where the country was in 2008 and 2009 economically, uh, and where it is now, given it's correlated with the Obama presidency, may not have been caused by the Obama presidency, but uh, the economy has done very well in most respects, given the baseline from which it started. Obama will be remembered for passing one of the most consequential pieces of health care legislation in American history in the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. He will be remembered for being the president who was in office and offered words of support, somewhat belatedly, but words of support for gay marriage and the rights of uh, the LGBTQ uh, community. So in in many respects, Obama has been, I think, a successful domestic president who has accomplished uh, quite a lot despite uh, significant opposition. I, like Helen, had a lot of doubts in 2008, partly just because I thought the expectations were absurd. I have to say, Helen's not going to like me for saying this, I've kind of come around Um, And some of it is a bit superficial. When I was watching him dance the tango in Argentina this week, I did think, wow, he's the American president. He's quite good at his job. Um, But I do have a strong sense, and there is an analogy here, I think, with the, the British example, that he's probably at the peak of his powers around now. And and obviously, he's learned a lot on the job. And he said it himself. And it's that thing that politicians often do say, which is they're just learning how to do it at the point where they have to leave. Um, But I have this lingering feeling that he and Hillary have come the wrong way round. And it's analogous to Blair and Brown in the UK context. I've long thought that actually Gordon Brown should have gone first. And that what you need first time round is a fairly hardened, battle-hardened, possibly even slightly cynical politician who knows how to play the game. And then you get the hopey-changey guy second. And that if Brown had been in first and Blair had been in second, the New Labour project would probably have gone a lot better. And that Blair would have been a good kind of tail-end prime minister to sort of hold the thing together. And not least, Brown was exhausted by the time he got in. And I have the fear that the same thing is going to happen with Hillary and Obama in that I think Hillary and Helen and I were both big Hillary fans in 2008. She does look a little bit tired now, um, possibly even past it. And I have a fear that her presidency might be a bit like Gordon Brown's premiership, whereas it would be great if Obama was a candidate in 2016. Finbar, is that plausible that actually, though Obama has been pretty good. And actually, in some ways, his second term might have been better than his first term. Hillary's moment was 2008. And in a sense, this is Obama's time now. And yeah, he's dancing the tango, but he's dancing the tango out of office. It's difficult because there's two pieces to this. There's the order you'd like them to have come in in terms of what you think they could have done. And then there's the practicalities. Um, Would it have been possible, really, to go Bush, 
back to Clinton to continue the dynastic sense in American presidential politics. And so, well, I partly agree with you that it probably would have been better to have Hillary than Obama. I just don't see it as practical. Now, that's going very much against the grain of what was happening in 2008 in the sense that it looked like Hillary had a lock and that Obama was this way left of field candidate. But looking now backwards, that glorious thing of hindsight, I, I just don't think it would have worked. I think there would have been even more opposition. Now, would Hillary have tried to do something as significant as the healthcare reform that Obama did as he stepped in to the office? And then would Hillary have also gotten destroyed in the midterms and losing so many seats? You know, we don't have the counterfactual. So we don't know what would have actually happened in the playout. I'm actually less in agreement with you on Blair Brown, because I don't think that Brown would have been able to, as it were, rehabilitate the Labour Party in the same way that Blair did. Now, you may not like what happened in terms of repainting the party and moving some of its politic, but I don't think Brown would have made Labour as electable as Blair did. The reason I think the analogy works is 2008, I think a Democrat was going to win that election. I think 1997, I think... Labour were going to win. And in a sense, it didn't really matter who was leader. Brown was going to, he wouldn't have won as big a majority as Blair, but he would have won. And then what you have is the person at the beginning, Hillary Brown, who knows how to play the game. We're going to talk to John Judas about this in a moment. And he has a fairly clear view about what could have happened in 2008 and what didn't happen. And one of the things he says, as you'll hear, is that he does hold Obama culpable for the failure in the 2010 midterms, because He wasn't that kind of hardened politician. The one thing we know about the Clintons is that they never take their eye off the ball about what might happen at the next election. And that did make, Aaron, that did make a huge difference to the trajectory of the Obama administration, that he had two years. And then from that point on, he's been battling against a very, very resistant Congress. I think that's right. One thing I wanted to say about the sequencing of of presidents in a way is I'm reminded of this book that uh, Samuel Huntington wrote a while back called uh, American Politics, The Promise of Disharmony. Uh, And he argued you basically get these kind of cycles where you have somebody who gets away from the imagined principles of the American Constitution and and the Republic. And you could argue uh, that that was the case with the Bush administration, not only with two long wars, but torture and Guantanamo. Guantanamo Bay and things like that. And then you get a revival kind of spirit, which you might have had in Obama, right? We're going to reclaim what America stands for. We don't torture, right? We we don't fight these prolonged wars, which of course we do. And people get very fired up and this is the over expectations moment. And then that candidate can't deliver. And what you get is recriminations and, and wondering what went wrong. And then that leads uh, to uh, apathy and perhaps an acceptance of a more hardened uh, real politique uh, style candidate, which might not be the best order <laughs> or sequence in which things should go. But uh, Huntington did make a fairly good argument about why this seems to happen uh, repeatedly. Of course, in politics, we never get to choose the sequence. That's the the way it works. Mm. Helen, I'm going to force you now to tell me what you think has been good about the Obama presidency, because it hasn't all been bad. And if you have to say now, as we're coming to the end, which parts of it have exceeded your expectations? Where do you think he's outperformed what you thought was possible in 2008? I think that in on domestic policy, he has been a, a relatively successful president. And you can point to a number of things, and obviously the most consequential of them has been Obamacare. I think that in some sense, the outcomes there have been rather mixed. And, and certainly as a former Hillary Clinton supporter, though now 
rather disillusioned, I would say that um, what's striking about the act that was passed is, is it was rather more similar to what Hillary Clinton proposed back in 2008 than what Obama had actually campaigned upon. But, you know, it's a radical change in healthcare provision in the, in the United States. And no president of either party, I think, has got through Congress such a consequential piece of legislation probably since Lyndon Johnson back in the 1960s. Finally, in this discussion, I'd like to reflect a little bit on one of the things that Obama's legacy might hang on, which is the Supreme Court. Now that we know his nominee, Merrick Garland, and we're now facing the question of whether there's any possibility that a Republican Senate will indeed approve this nomination. But the Republicans face a series of fairly tough choices here too, because if Donald Trump becomes the nominee for the president and then doesn't just lose that race, but takes the Republican Party down across the board and they lose the Senate and possibly even the House of Representatives. They are facing the nightmare scenario of, let's assume it's a Hillary presidency and maybe not just one, but two or even three Supreme Court vacancies coming up and a Congress that will approve whom Hillary nominates. So Aaron, do you think that the Republican Party now needs to start thinking about worst case scenarios. I mean, Merrick Garland, this is not, I don't think any of us are specialists in this field. He's been chosen as a centrist, tilting left. And, you know, this is the law, but it's just politics. We know that. Um, nominee, uh, there are worse possibilities for the Republicans than Garland. On the other hand, it's quite clear that if he was on the court, the court would now be voting 5 4 whereas before it was voting, as it were, 4-5 with Scalia as the swing. Should the Republicans be thinking that maybe they should give Obama this final feather in his cap for fear of something worse? I think it's very hard for the Republicans and frankly most politicians to think long term at this point. So on paper, Garland does seem like uh, perhaps the best possible case that the Republicans could have expected from an Obama nominee. He is uh, fairly centrist, though I would agree he's somewhat left of center, but he was confirmed, I believe, to the uh, Washington uh, Appeals Court, Circuit Court, uh, about 97 to nothing in the Senate when he was first nominated. He's also, uh, this is a little uh, macabre to talk about, but he's 63, so he's not going to live that long is actually one of the selling points that has been raised for Republicans, right? He won't be on the court for an incredibly long time. Though when you get on the court, it does have a tendency to keep people going for quite a long time. Yes. uh, Most doctors do recommend for your health that you become a Supreme Court justice. It's easier said than done. Uh, The the problem is that no matter who Obama nominates, as long as they're to the left of Scalia, which is not a very hard feat to pull off, you're going to move the court to the left. And so you have Republicans in the Senate who are worried about being primaried from their right in the upcoming uh, election. They don't want to see that happen. And so uh, they are thinking about their short-term interests. In a way, Mayor Garland could be a worst-case scenario, because if you actually bring him up for debate in the Senate, if he comes out of the Judiciary Committee, it's very hard to justify a, a no vote. And this is one of the things that makes it a really a nightmare for Republicans in the Senate because they know from experience now, those of them who did approve previous Obama nominees, they did really badly in the primary contest on, you know, the absolute hot button issues like guns and abortion and so on. These are, these are deal breakers for many of their electorates. So is there any way out of this for the Republican Party? I mean, the Republican Party is in a very, very dangerous situation. They, they could, and we're going to again be talking to John Judas about this in a second, they could be looking at not just a 
once every four years defeat, but a kind of generational shift here in the way that American politics plays out for their side of the divide. It's almost becoming a perfect storm. They're getting Trump as the potential nominee who drives away more moderate Republican voters. And they have this issue to deal with now in terms of the Supreme Court nominee. They've reached for the Biden rule, which is hilarious because there is no such thing. And Biden Uh, himself says, I disown my own rule. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So it comes from a 1992 speech that he gave um, when he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And he was commenting on a hypothetical case that a nominee would be coming up very, very, very close to the election. And he gave that speech in late June, July of a presidential year. Um, And what he actually said was, if there is uh, general agreement, then we should actually take that person out of the committee and bring it to a vote. He, He didn't actually have a blanket statement in that speech. So this issue where they're saying we're not going to look at it in a presidential year is hilarious. Um, there have been 15 times when there has been a Supreme Court uh, nomination in a presidential year, uh, six confirmations. So for me, the Republicans need to play a little bit smarter and run a slow process, knowing that they're not going to get to a confirmation. But they have to get away from this position that is obstructionist because it's killing them. Finally, Helen, It's happening already. Yesterday, the Supreme Court reached a decision on a case that was brought by teachers in California who wished no longer to have to pay their union dues if they weren't inclined to do so. Uh, The court is now split 4-4, and 4-4 in this case means the status quo was upheld. So it was, in a sense, a defeat for the Scalia side of the argument, because if he had still been alive, it would have been 5-4, and the unions would have lost. So it's already the nightmare is already um, starting to unfold for the Republicans. Should this focus their minds or does this remind them that actually, in a sense, they've already lost this game? I think that they've already lost this game. And I think far worse for them is what we are actually seeing is a destruction of the Republican Party as we know it in front of our eyes. And one of the reasons why they can't really retreat on this is, is because, you know, they're facing an insurgent rebellion from their voters in their nomination process. It isn't just the people who are voting for Trump. It's the people who are voting for Cruz. I mean, between two thirds and three quarters of Republican voters have voted for candidates who spend their time attacking the Republican Party elites as part of their claim for the presidential Republican nomination. Now, in those circumstances, I don't actually think the Republicans in the Senate can start going back on the things that they've said about opposing Obama's nomination for the court, particularly as it seems that the issues that are most to the front of Republican voters or conservative Republican voters' minds, I should say, about the court are now Second Amendment issues about gun rights and the NRA is very opposed to the nomination of Garland. So I I don't see any way out of this for them because it's just reflective of, of how dysfunctional a political party they have become. Thank you to Helen, Aaron and Finbar. If you'd like to hear the views of some local school kids about the Obama presidency and what it's meant to them, and eight years has been a big chunk of their lives, do visit our website at Polis Election Podcast, where we've got some discussion from the Jack Hunt School in Peterborough and their politics club reflecting on Obama, Hillary and plenty else besides. Now to my special guest, John Judas who in 2002 co-authored with Rui Tixera an enormously influential and widely cited book called The Emerging Democratic Majority. It argued that a coalition of women, minorities, the college-educated and skilled professionals, all growing parts of the US voting population, 
could see the Democratic Party come to dominate American politics for a generation or more, as the Republicans were reduced to seeking their votes from an ever-shrinking part of the electorate. Obama's victory in 2008, which also saw the Democrats regain control of Congress, seemed to prove the authors right. But since then, sweeping Republican victories in midterm elections have thrown the thesis into question. And last year, Judas himself partly recanted his argument in another influential article called The Emerging Republican Advantage. Now, in 2016, with the Republicans in disarray again, his original thesis looks like it might be about to be proved right. So I started by asking John Judas what exactly it was he'd been arguing back in 2002. It was clear to us at the time that various voting blocks were moving from uh, the Republicans to the Democrats, particularly people who had college degrees, uh, who worked in jobs that didn't necessarily have a bottom line, like teachers, nurses, uh, all the way up to engineers, doctors. And they made up an increasing percentage of the vote in states like New Jersey and California. Women, minorities were a growing share of the uh, American electorate. And uh, together, we argued that they were going to make up for the uh, loss of much of the white working class who had uh, deserted the Democrats uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, and had formed a lot of the basis of the uh, Reagan conservative majorities in the 1980s. So that was really the key to the argument then. If you look at the um, Obama vote or the Democratic congressional vote in 2006 and 2008, those were the groups, and add to those again the uh, the 20-somethings, the kids who were coming into the electorate, uh, that uh, pushed the Democrats over the top and gave them a, a congressional majority in 2008. So in 2008 particularly, essentially it looked like you had been shown that you were right. Last year, you expressed that your doubts about this view and, and your feeling that maybe the, the landscape had shifted since 2008. Where, where I was really wrong, I think, was in December of uh, 2008, after Obama won office, and you had a, the onset of uh, the Great Recession, which looked at that point like it was going to be almost a replay of the Great Depression, what I thought then was you had a situation that was similar to that which Franklin Roosevelt faced in April 1933 when he came into office, and that Obama would have the chance to do very dramatic things that would put the Democrats uh, in a situation where they'd not just have a slight majority, but a kind of lasting and enduring majority, similar to the New Deal Democrats, who really... Uh, had control of American politics, with, you know, with some exceptions, occasionally losing the presidency from 1932 up to 1980. So I think that that hope uh, proved to be vain and false. That that never came to pass. And instead, what we really have is a kind of unstable equilibrium between the two parties where the Democrats uh, have an advantage in presidential years and the uh, Republicans have an advantage in midterm elections where the turnout is less and where uh, seniors make up a larger uh, percentage of the vote. 
and where minorities make up less of the vote. So that's, uh, that's the situation that we're in going into 2016. Yeah, we'll come on to 2016 in a moment. But just to go back to 2008, and particularly the 2008-2010 period, wh- why do you think that Obama and the Obama administration did not seize the opportunity that was there for them? Was it a failure of nerve, or was it actually that they collided with a kind of political reality? Well, you know, I I think it was a number of things. First, you can make the argument that Obama really didn't have as good a political opportunity as Roosevelt. Roosevelt had really four years of the Great Depression, uh, unemployment at 25 percent, complete exhaustion of public faith with not only with Republicans but with business when he came into office. Uh, Obama, you know, it had only been like uh, September uh, of 2008 was the big crash with Lehman Brothers. So the public was mad, but not to the same extent. There wasn't the same depth of alienation that there was in in, uh, 1933. There was still a kind of inbuilt American skepticism about the big government that favored, in that sense, a Republican opposition. I think that there was something of an opportunity in that spring and summer that uh, Obama didn't take. And he didn't take it because I think he was preoccupied with the technical problems of trying to pull America out of the uh, Great Recession and uh, took his eye off uh, the political opportunity that he had so that, for instance, he didn't uh, go after the bankers uh, the way that Roosevelt went after them in 1933. And that, I think that would have filled some of the void that the Tea Party itself filled in, in uh, 2009 and 2010 and taken some of the political pressure off of him. If you look at that 2010 election, November 2010, where the Republicans had their first real wave election, uh, and the second was 2014, and if you compare what Obama did in 2010, his people, with what Ronald Reagan did in 1982, when he faced a very similar situation with unemployment, even higher than it was uh, in 2010. Reagan and his people were always aware of the politics, and they fashioned a campaign that year called Stay the Course, and they really minimized their losses in the Congress. Uh, The Obama people really did nothing. The Scott Brown victory in the uh, Massachusetts uh, Senate race in January of that uh, year, 2010, just completely took them by surprise. Do you think that he also maybe thought he had more time than he did in the sense that if this emerging Democratic majority was really there, he wasn't expecting that it was only two years before he lost control of Congress again? I mean, maybe that's part of the, the sort of slight political well, well, naivety. I, obviously, they to. didn't expect that, that uh, the disaster would befall them. And that's why the uh, this by-election in Massachusetts in January of uh, 2010 took them by such surprise. I mean, Massachusetts is almost democratic a state. And to have a Republican win the Senate there and also undermine the uh, filibuster-proof majority that the Democrats had was entirely unexpected. So if we take the story forward to now, to 2016, start with the Democratic side. 
when you see what's happening in this primary season and the kind of fragmentation that you're getting of the democratic vote, so that that majority made up of the kind of coalition that you describe may still be there, but it seems very split between the two candidates. I mean, particularly the young voters are so overwhelmingly in favour of Sanders and then other demographics, other groups are so clearly overwhelmingly in favour of Hillary Clinton, including black voters. Is there a risk that this uh, democratic majority is fundamentally split or depending on who the candidate is, and it's probably going to be Hillary, will they turn out? Well, well, I, I'm going to turn turn your question a little upside down and do it backwards, sure. okay? I am going to start a little with Trump and go back to the Democrats. Okay. I, I, I think that what could be happening uh, this year is that very similar to what the American populace did in the 1890s when their movement, in effect, ended up uh, helping the Republicans and not the Democrats, I think that what you have with Trump is the possibility that this Democratic majority, which has been threatened, especially in these midterm elections, could be given new life again by Trump. Uh, Because really what he's doing is he potentially drives uh, several of these Democratic constituencies that might not be voting to the extent that they they would have in 2008 or 2012 uh, back to the polls. Women, minorities, and here we're talking about Hispanics, who I've always thought are a much more questionable Democratic vote than African Americans. And you can see it if you look at some of the voting statistics. Uh, they could be heading in the same direction as Italians and Irish who, you know, as they got wealthier, got less democratic and less liberal. But I think that uh, a candidate like Trump could really drive them into the Democratic coalition for the long term, just as happened in California in the 1990s when a kind of xenophobic uh, campaign against uh, illegal immigrants that shaded off into immigrants themselves created a democratic majority that's pretty much lasted and now they have a cloture-proof majority in the California legislature. So I think that Trump potentially revives this. I don't think that uh, Sanders-Clinton is really a problem for the Democrats as long as you have uh, somebody like uh, Trump as the opponent. I think the party uh, unifies for sure. Uh, in in November. Again, I think that uh, this election, I mean, I could find myself uh, saying, oh, I was right. You know, we were completely right all along. (laughs) Uh, If the Republicans had uh, found a candidate who uh, could have been Rubio, it could have been someone else who had more of a centrist appeal. Presumably some of these possible fissures or cracks in the Democratic coalition could have opened up. I mean, I'm sure you're right. What you describe is that the Republicans look like they're going to stumble across the kind of candidate that will unite their opponents. Yes, I think I've I always thought that it's very hard for a candidate from a party that has already held the White House for two successive terms to win again. You know, George H.W. Bush had a hard time winning in 1988, and it was only because he had a, an extraordinarily weak opponent. And again, this is going to be, it might be a similar situation. Al Gore loses in 2000 in spite of uh, having a still a pretty booming economy and so on. So Hillary Clinton had that, plus the her own problems of a, a lot of the electorate uh, distrusting her. You put that together with maybe, let's say, Rubio and and Kasich, Florida and Ohio, and uh, you had a real 
good chance that the Republicans could w- win the White House, uh, keep the Senate and the House, and he'd have a you know, a united Republican government in 2016. But I don't think that's going to happen now. I think that it's much more likely that uh, uh, the Democrats will win the White House and get back the Senate. Are the Republicans paying the price for concentrating on their core vote, which is essentially, it now appears, angry white voters, given your overarching thesis, which is that the long-term demographic trends favor the Democrats? I mean, the the Republicans have kind of doubled down on their core vote, and it's come back to bite them, right? Well, during the New Deal period, from let's say 1932 to 1980, you had the two parties were kind of inverted pyramids, where the Republicans, I mean, there are obvious exceptions to this, but upper-income, middle-income Republicans, lower-income Democrats, there's more lower-income people than upper-income people. It was a, sort of the classic uh, social democratic paradigm. And that's how the Democrats won election. They were the party of the forgotten America and the common man, all these things. Since then, the parties have been very heterogeneous. You know, the Democrats are upper-income professionals and the lower-income minorities. I mean, again, I'm exaggerating, but if you want to make a parody of it, it's uh, rich people and their nannies. Republicans, on the other hand, also are very wealthy, Uh, suburbanites from, let's say, just white Georgian counties outside Atlanta. And uh, on the other hand, white working class voters, some in the north, a lot in the south, small business, people like that, but not united around the same issues. So you had this kind of unwieldy coalition that's really falling apart. Another big issue was trade. I used to go to these um, Christian coalition meetings. That was the largest right-wing evangelical organization in the 1990s. And I remember going in the early 1990s and interviewing people. And the heads of the organization were these uh, Republican operatives, uh, Pat Robertson and Ralph Reed, who were, you know, believers in God, but Robertson was the uh, son of a senator, and Reed was plugged into the whole Republican political apparatus, and they they were really much closer to being business Republicans. So they had the Christian coalition endorsing the North American Free Trade Agreement, let's say, 1993. And I would talk to the rank and file there, and they would all be opposed to it. They would be on the side of Pat Buchanan and stuff, but they kept quiet. They didn't uh, try to alter the agenda of the organization, which was really to combine this uh, uh, belief in uh, God's way as far as school prayer and abortion goes with support for very conventional Republican business positions. That kind of deal, that arrangement is falling apart. Yeah, they're not quite And now, that's really what uh, Trump is threatening. Do you think that there's any chance, because we're seeing something of this in the UK, where we have, as you know, of course, a first-past-the-post two-party system, and at the moment, it looks like the two main parties can no longer really hold together various things. Europe is one, but also fundamental economic questions are just pulling apart the coalitions. And it's quite hard to see how the two main parties can continue to be the vehicle for such diverse political and economic interests. Is, is something similar potentially happening in the US that the Republican Party, for instance, actually can't hold together anymore? I think the reverse might happen in the US from uh, uh, Britain. Now, I don't know a lot about the UK, so don't 
if I say something completely stupid, you, your listeners will have to pardon me. But I would say in the UK, it's more as if Labor was nominating uh, Sanders and the conservatives were going with Kasich and Rubio. Yeah, that's about right. And <clears throat> so you had a mar the marginalization of the uh, left rather than the marginalization of the right. If Sanders actually got the nomination in the United States, and I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter, I have to tell you, that's, uh, I think he would get uh, defeated, even perhaps by somebody like Donald Trump, because uh, Americans are just not going to put up at this point with uh, programs that cost $18 trillion in 10 years. They, they see that stuff and they just see higher taxes and stuff like that. I'm not, you know... We're, but I think it's the opposite situation in the in, in the United States where the uh, Republican Party is going to move too far to the right on certain issues and really is going to marginalize itself, and uh, the Democrats will be able to have a, a comfortable majority. Uh, you know, in, in Britain, you have the, almost the opposite situation where labor might be marginalizing itself. If you don't mind, could I ask you, why are you a supporter of a candidate you think might even lose to Donald Trump? Because over the long, long term, Americans have to deal with this question about uh, uh, income and inequality. What's it doing uh, to our politics in the United States? You know, we have a situation really where people with enormous amounts of money have enormous and untoward influence over our politics, uh, where they've been able to, through lobbies, gut uh, economic, environmental, consumer regulation, and so on. So I think we have to deal with these things. I, I always assumed Bernie wouldn't uh, get the nomination. You know, at some point, you, though, you have to raise the issues and make uh, it clear to the public that these things matter. And I think that he has done a great service by uh, pushing uh, Hillary Clinton on these issues. I mean, she's going to take a more centrist position, and, and she really has to. But, you know, he's opened the discussion, and over the years, I am hoping that uh, those positions have more influence in America. Could I just finish then by asking you about the other big issue which cuts across this election and relates to the fundamental partisan divide in American politics, which is the nomination of Scalia's replacement for the Supreme Court, and the question of whether, if what you say is likely to come to pass, that not only are you going to get a Democratic presidency, but that Trump could take the Republicans down in Congress as well. Should the Republicans be thinking actually that they're facing a much bleaker future um, if they don't nominate Merrick Garland now, that they could be facing a Democratic Party that will be free to do what it wants with the Supreme Court in future? Obviously, a lot is going to depend upon whether the Democrats can win the presidency and the Senate and nominate who they want to the Supreme Court, because with our divided system of court, uh, Congress, and uh, the presidency, the court has enormous independent influence over America. I mean, you could see that what, what the effect of the court was on the civil rights uh, movement in the 1950s. And if it could reverse the uh, kinds of decisions that the last courts have been making about political campaigns, about workers' rights, it could, it could have a tremendous influence about the, uh, over the direction of the country. And one last question. On, on this podcast, we're also going to be discussing Obama's legacy. It's almost been overshadowed by this election because the election is so dramatic and it has so much color and character to it and it's got such a sort of dynamic narrative that people haven't quite got to the point yet when they're reflecting on what 
Obama has done in his nearly eight years. He's still got a, nearly a year to go and, and how history will remember him. But when you look at the sweep of his presidency, we talked about the first two years, but you look at the overall arc of it, do you think it will be remembered as a success? I think the main accomplishment of uh, Obama's second term was the Iran deal. And if a future president can take advantage of that, I think there's a good chance that we could dig ourselves out of the enormous hole that uh, George W. Bush created by invading Iraq. I think that the, the achievements of the first uh, term, uh, if, you have a, if you have the Democratic uh, majority in 2016, uh, could mean a lot. If the Republicans were to take control, then I, I, I would have a much darker view of what uh, Obama c accomplished because the two pieces of major legislation that were passed the Affordable Care Act and the Dodd-Frank financial regulation have a lot of flaws. And uh, like the original Social Security bill in 1935, they need to be reformed, improved. And if you have the Democrats, you have a chance of doing that. If the, you have the Republicans, you have the uh, chance of going backwards. And uh, in, in that case, they will be uh, kind of uh, blips on the horizon and footnotes to history. And do you think that Obama carries any share of the blame for the Donald Trump phenomenon? I mean, is, is Trump and everything that he stands for a consequence of some of the failures of the Obama presidency, or is it actually simply a function of what's gone wrong on the Republican I, side? I wouldn't do this thing with Obama and Donald Trump. I, I mean, it's, uh, their, their styles are certainly completely uh, opposed to each other. But again, I would look back to the 1960s and the 1970s and to the inability of the Democratic liberals to find a way to maintain a multiracial uh, uh, political majority in the country. Some of the problems are due to uh, Democrats adopting uh, legislation and approaches that were beneficial to minorities, particularly African Americans, but that had the effect of making the middle-class whites think that they and not the upper class were paying for them. Racial busing was the obvious example. But, the, you know, there are even elements of that in the Affordable Care Act where people who are already have insurance see their premiums going up, and that seems to be a result of their having to pay for people who are uninsured, whereas for, you know, rich people it does, doesn't matter. It's just a drop in the bucket. So... Again, I think that, that if you're going to say that if you're going to put fault somewhere, you'd have to go back to the late 60s, uh, early 70s. Thank you to John Judas. His new book, The Populist Explosion, How the Great Recession Transformed European and American Politics, will be out in time for the presidential election in the fall, and it'll bring the story up to date. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. Now back to our panel. The international news of the past week, as in so many weeks recently, and indeed for quite a while now, has been dominated by terrorism. We've had the continuing fallout from the attacks in Brussels, a Taliban atrocity in Lahore in Pakistan that killed more than 70 people, Muslims and Christians. And in Syria, the defeat of ISIS with the recapture of Palmyra by government forces, which President Assad claimed was a great victory in the war on terror. 
So, Aaron, this is a big question to which there may not be a straightforward answer. Is is that a victory in the war on terror when Assad wins in Syria? Well, I'll give you the pedantic answer and the more useful answer. The pedantic answer is that you can't really win a war on a tactic. So I've never really liked the term war on terror. It's not like people are going to forget how to commit uh, atrocities, terroristic acts, if a certain terror group is defeated or, or dismantled. The more practical answer is this depends on whether or not you think territorial bases are highly crucial for carrying out terrorist attacks and uh, whether you're thinking long-term or short-term. So I'll start with the second one. In the long-term, I think this is going to help decrease the number of terrorist attacks. And in fact, if you look at Europe over the last 30, 40 years or so, what you've actually seen is a decrease in the total number of terrorist attacks. But when uh, attacks do happen, they tend to be uh, uh, more violent, more casualties uh, take place. Uh, in the long term, it can only help uh, that IS or ISIS or Daesh or whatever you want to call them loses territory. But in the short term, this is exactly this type of thing that can make uh, groups like this lash out, either for strategic reasons or uh, for more, I guess I would say, performative reasons because they uh, wish to demonstrate a strength or rage in the face of possible uh, humiliating defeat. Helen, part of the challenge with this, though, is the old, is my enemy's enemy, my friend question, because this is Assad we're talking about. Um, it's with the support of Putin and Russia. It's kind of hard to celebrate any victory when Assad and Putin are ostensibly on the winning side. We'll come on in a second to the question of whether... UK foreign policy is really relevant in this or not. But what's your own sense of how we in the West should respond to the situation in Syria now? We know who our enemy is, it's IS, but who are our friends? I don't think there are friends in this situation. I think, though, that this in some ways goes back to the discussion we were having earlier about Obama's um, foreign policy and Hillary Clinton's involvement in that. And that is, is that the decisions that were made about what to do about what was happening in Syria back in 2012 have turned out to be very problematic. I mean, they essentially amounted to deciding upon wanting regime change in Syria without actually having a strategy that would how to bring that about. To the extent that there was a strategy involved bringing radical Sunni Islamic groups like ISIS into play, and that has had these profoundly unintended consequences. And we are, as you say, where we are. And in these circumstances, I think that the most important thing is is that ISIS is stopped. Now, we don't have to get any pleasure about who is doing the more active burden lifting where that's concerned. But it is important, I think, that ISIS is pushed out of the territory in which it holds, not just in Syria, but in Libya too. Finbar Boris Johnson wrote an article a couple of days ago in The Telegraph in which he did celebrate the recapture of Palmyra, partly he was doing his I'm a sort of scholar of the ancient world shtick and it's great to get these wonderful sites back under our control but he also quite unabashedly said though Assad is a terrible man and Putin is a terrible man they're not nearly as bad as the people that they've just defeated and in that sense we do need to be willing to work out who our friends are in this region and, and be willing to back them and it did sound a little bit Trumpish or Trumpian or whatever the word is so there are two questions here. One, what's a politician like Boris Johnson playing at when he says we need to be less squeamish about Assad? And then two, which I'll come to the others in a moment, does it matter what British politicians think about this? Boris Johnson 
is probably trying to rehabilitate himself and make himself look slightly more serious than the clown that he is. It is ridiculous that he is commenting in this way. He has less understanding than I do, and I'm not a specialist in the area at all. And it is frustrating to see him crashing around and putting forward positions which people might take to be serious. Um, In terms of British involvement in British foreign policy, it does matter in the sense of how America reacts in having or not having partnerships or a joint strategy. Uh, Going back to what Helen was saying and what happened uh, very early on in um, the beginnings of the Syrian civil war and Obama's positioning, uh, etc. They were very, very worried that they were going to be completely isolated and not have the support of partners like the UK. So the UK militarily doesn't have as much presence as it has in the past, obviously. It doesn't have as much weight in diplomatic sense. But as part of coalitions, as part of partnership, that's a really, really important part of what's happening. And so just to reflect back on what we were discussing earlier in terms of Obama and his presidency, I think Syria is going to be one of the great disappointments is too weak a word. Uh, Moments where we see a, a catastrophic failure of both the Obama administration's foreign policy, but the West generally in terms of dealing with the situation. Because the one thing that is clear is that we're not going to get regime change. I mean, Assad now looks stronger than he has done for a number of years. And, and his is a terrible regime. There's, there is no good outcome here. Aaron, we've also heard recently Obama gave an interview to The Atlantic, I believe. Um, it was The Atlantic magazine in which he kind of surveyed some of his foreign policy positions. And the, the headline that came out in a UK context was that he seemed quite cross with David Cameron, or at least disappointed by what he considered Cameron and the UK's government's somewhat superficial commitment to some of its foreign policy positions, taking its eye off the ball in Libya and so on. Do you have any sense that Britain's role in relation to the United States is causing real frustration in the White House? Is Is this a reflection of the fact that they are disappointed by the UK or actually they're not actually that fussed about the UK anymore because there are much more important actors out there? I think the comments that Obama made, first off, they didn't come out of a vacuum. They've been echoed by members of both the center-left and center-right coalitions in the United States political coalitions for a while now, basically along the lines of uh, NATO members other than the United States don't spend a large enough percentage of their GDP on the military. And this is a bit of a double game that the United States likes to play because on the one hand, it's frustrated with the lack of burden sharing, but on the other hand, this does give the United States a lot more influence within the NATO coalition because they're the ones that can supply uh, the airlift necessary to get NATO troops from point A to point B, and they have uh, the vast bulk of, of military power. So in terms of the UK specifically, I think the frustrations that Obama voiced of all NATO members apply the least to the UK and, and, and France, uh, for, for that matter. And a lot of these frustrations it, it kind of represent this image of, of Europe as a whole to go back to um, this thing that Robert Kagan wrote a while back, right? Uh, Americans are from Mars and Europeans are from Venus. That, of course, is a simplification, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't hold sway in the minds of a lot of uh, American policymakers. Finally, Helen, some of us, not all of us, I think, have been watching The Night Manager, along with lots of people in this country, uh, the adaptation of the John le Carre novel about 
arms dealing and the British secret services and so on. Um, and it's provoked a certain amount of comment in the newspapers. Matthew Dancona in The Guardian wrote an article saying this offered a kind of window into some choices that Britain faces about its role in the world, essentially pointing out that John le Carre has become a very moralistic writer. He's, um, as he said, after the Cold War, we've defeated communism, now we need to defeat capitalism. And that means particularly these wicked arms dealers, pharmaceutical companies, and so on. And the implication was that the, the night manager offers you two visions of how Britain can play a role in the world. They can either be the kind of moralizers, taking down the bad guys, or that they can be the bad guys. That's basically the choice. So it's not really a big strategic question. It's just a question, do you want to be moral or amoral? Is it possible to see the world in those lights that actually that's the choice that a kind of middle ranking nation like Britain faces? Does it want to be chipping away at the bad stuff out there or does it want to be making money out of the bad stuff? I don't think that that's the um, the way that the world is at all. I don't actually think it's the way that John le Carre really sees the world either. It's the way that the adaptation of the night manager saw the world in that what is the most striking really about John le Carre's view of these things over the years and it goes through his Cold War novels and the later novels is that he thinks that Britain is largely irrelevant and so far as there is a moralising position for Britain to take it is one of observation in Le Carre's world. The characters who tend to um, see things in the way that John Le Carre sees things end up doing very little. And that in that sense, I think that this does tie back to what Obama was criticising Cameron for, particularly about Libya, was, was that there was a lot of talk and there was no action when it came to it, in the sense that, from the Obama administration's point of view, the responsibility for what happened in Libya after Gaddafi was removed, was on Britain and France. It wasn't on the United States. Now, one can argue about whether that's a very sensible position for the Obama administration to have taken, but that appears to have been the assumption from which they started. And then what they see is Britain and France doing absolutely nothing. In the sense of British impotence, I think that fits quite well with the Carrie's view of the world. And Aaron, I'm not going to come to you because I believe you, you almost uniquely in this country haven't watched The Night Manager, which is kind of heroic. Uh, it, was, it wasn't that good, um, but it was fun and it, you know, the costumes were nice and so on. But some people have also tried to say that this should factor into our Brexit considerations because we're facing a choice here between the, the people who want out say that Britain can still punch its weight. But actually, if you think that Britain's role is primarily to be with the good guys, trying to regulate, control, keep an eye on the bad guys. The European Union is much better place to do that. And Britain as part of the European Union is much better place to do that than Britain on its own. Erin, you are rightly giving me a sceptical look. Did you, as you were watching The Night Manager, did you think, oh, this is really relevant for the Brexit argument? It never occurred to me that it was really relevant to the Brexit argument. I would say that I'm very sceptical of how much being a part of the European Union matters for Britain's influence as far as foreign policy is concerned. When you have 28 countries, each of which can unilaterally veto a common foreign or security policy, that's what economists would call a huge amount of transaction cost, right? Basically, you settle on lowest common denominator uh, politics. So there's actually something to be said that Britain acting in not so unwieldy a coalition would give it more influence in the world rather than less because its voice wouldn't be lost amongst so many others. Going back to the morality of the night manager and this idea, right, that you can be on the side of the angels or on the side of the, the devil, I thought there was one interesting parallel uh, that took place in the show, and I won't give away the ending because it'd be too for much of a spoiler. For 
Finbar, who's the only one who hasn't seen it, of course, Livesey. But uh, there was one point in the show where one of the MI6 characters says, you know, we need people like Richard Roper because he's an extra legal entity that can advance the interests of Britain, that can advance the interests of the United States. And I won't give the ending away, but basically the way that Richard Roper is dealt with, he's dealt with by the character that Tom Hiddleston plays using very extra legal means to take care of this individual, which raised some questions about exactly, okay, well, if you're going to be on the side of the angels, exactly how much can you be bound by law and and considerations of justice and things of this nature. Thank you to Helen, Aaron and Finbar, to our special guest, John Judas, and to our production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Next week, we're going to be coming back to the question of the EU referendum with our guest, Professor Anand Menon from King's College in London who for the past 18 months has been leading a project which seeks to explain the facts about the EU to UK voters. He'll be telling me what he's found as he's taken his roadshow of experts around the country and just how hard it is to remain above the fray. More tales from the front line of democratic politics in this most extraordinary election season. Do please join us then. My name is David Runciman and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast, Election. Election.